This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. Welcome to SE Radio. My name is Johannes and I'm here with Ken Collier and um, I will read you the uh, biography of him. Uh, Ken is author of Agile Analytics, a value-driven approach to business intelligence and data warehousing. He is a pioneer in combining agile methods with data warehousing, business intelligence, analytics. Ken has written extensively about agile analytics for the Qatar Consortium and his blog, theagilist.com. Um, so, welcome to the show, Ken. Thank you. Happy uh, to be here. <laughs> is there anything you want to add to your biography? Uh, no, except that I am uh, the director of uh, advanced analytics for ThoughtWorks. And uh, we have data science team, uh, teams all over the world uh, working on analytics. So. so can you start with explaining maybe what analytics means in one minute or so? Sure. So... Um, so analytics is a is a, a very large umbrella term. Um, it ranges from descriptive analytics. Uh, most companies have business intelligence reporting, dashboards. Um, uh, sort of, it's sort of like looking in the rearview mirror, finding out what has happened. Um, then we move into uh, predictive analytics using uh, techniques like data mining, statistical analysis, machine learning uh, for. Uh, anticipating or, or probabilistically uh, predicting what might happen or what what is likely to happen and then at the uh, at the far end of the spectrum is prescriptive analytics uh, where we can actually use analytics as a way to influence uh, shopping behaviors uh, or uh, operational behaviors or, or things to happen so um, that's so analytics kind of runs the spectrum from business intelligence to uh, what what we now call data science, which mm. includes machine learning, data mining, and statistics. Ah. So, what would a typical uh, analytics project look like? Can you give a plastic example? Uh, sure. Actually, there's a couple of different uh, examples. the The most interesting projects are projects where analytics is part of a bigger solution. So, um, for example, I'll use uh, something that Amazon is, Amazon.com is working on. Um, in, in North America, and I suspect this is going to be true in the rest of the world, um, it costs a lot of money for Amazon to ship items across the country. Uh, America is a very large country and it costs a lot to ship from one coast to the other. Um, so they're using uh, data science and predictive analytics to anticipate what you might order, what you based on your browsing, based on your past orders, past shopping, um, similar to the way that Amazon recommends items that might interest you. Now what they're moving into is the ability to predict ahead of time when you're going to order something and they use that to ship the item closer to you not to your doorstep mm -hmm. but they ship it to a hub near you uh, so that when you do order it they can get it to you very quickly uh, without a lot of 
extra mm. cost. Um, so that's called anticipatory shipping. And uh, so the project itself uh, would include a lot of data science to figure out um, how to make those predictions and, and when to take action on those predictions. And then the bigger solution is the, the problem of moving items and, and deciding when, when to, to move uh, the items hmm. near you. So uh, can you elaborate a little bit on how they actually find out that you might be interested in it? Sure, so, um, so there are several techniques that are used Uh, for these kinds of things. For uh, recommendation systems, we often use a technique called collaborative filtering. Um, one, one use of that technique is um, to look at the characteristics of the shopper. So let's think about uh, Johannes' characteristics, um, your age, things that you've bought in the past, um, what you like to do, um, lots of information about you and find we can f look for other people that have similar characteristics and we can say these other people have purchased these items therefore you might like this item as well um, that's called collaborative filtering from a shopper to a shopper um, item by item means you uh, if you're browsing a, a book on, on Amazon or you're browsing an item in the store um, we can look and see What so people who bought that item also bought other items. What kinds of items mm. did they buy that are in common? And that, that can lead to recommendations as well. So that was a recommendations uh, scenario. For, for that anticipatory shipping, um, what we do is we look at the data, at the past data of your behavior, um, when you ordered things. Uh, maybe it's uh, something like, um, you browsed one day and on average four days later you you ordered the item so mm -hmm. so maybe there's a pattern that can be uncovered through multiple uh, searches on on the website that's I'm I, I don't work for Amazon so I don't know exactly what they're doing but that's mm -hmm. the sort of thing that we would do to do that kind of prediction um, so each each problem uh, we, we apply a different algorithm but what's I think what's fundamentally different uh, with analytics from programming other solutions is that instead of using a rules-based system, a series of if-then kinds of uh, rules to, to make a decision, we use a fuzzy matching or a probabilistic reasoning based on a, a load of past data. We're detecting patterns in the data that support a high likelihood or a high probability of something like that occurring again. Hmm. Um, another example of this is credit fraud detection. So when shoppers use their credit card, um, the credit card company knows what your behavior, your normal behavior is, and if your credit card, if the transaction looks unusual compared to what you normally do, it might get flagged as a, as a likely, um, hmm. it, somebody stole your credit card. Yeah. Um, so th that's another uh, use of, of predictive analytics. Mm. And it's all based on large volumes of data. Yeah. You mentioned data science a couple of times. Um, I've heard the term data scientist as well. Mm -hmm. So um, what is data science and what does a data scientist do in his daily life? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, 
So, so the term data science is a relatively new term, or at least it's become uh, popular only in the last two or three years. Um, the the phrase, uh, the term was coined uh, to describe somebody who goes beyond uh, statistics and probability. Um, often we find data scientists in the hard sciences. So at ThoughtWorks, our team of data science in North America are uh, PhDs in physics and chemistry and, and the, the sciences mm. where the, what they have learned are a set of skills for collecting massive amounts of data. So for example, one of the data scientists that I work with is, um, he's an astrophysicist. So he's familiar with collecting large volumes of, of data about space, stars mm -hmm. and, and galaxy information, and uh, analyzing that to possibly look for uh, detecting black holes or look for new planets, um, that sort of thing. So, so data scientists, um, they have strong statistical analysis skills, but they also know how to program, they know how to manipulate data into a format that's mineable or discoverable. Um, they, uh, so they, they have a spectrum of skills that go beyond just statistics. They also know about machine learning, which actually comes from the computing sciences. So, so they kind of blend together mathematics, computing science, computational mm. sciences, um, the ability to uh, rigorously apply scientific methods, so hypothesis testing and experimentation. Um, all of these things come together to create this role called data science. And what we're seeing, uh, I don't know if this, I don't know how, to, how much this is true in Europe, but what we're seeing in North America um, are more and more universities are starting to offer degree programs in uh, data science or analytics, and they tend to be multidisciplinary. So they don't, they don't, it's not just in computer science, it's not just in research sciences or mathematics, it's a blend of all of these things. Mm. Um, and so that's, uh, so data scientists, it kind of describes a very uh, special mix of skills. Mm. Um, but when I look at it, those people are more there for like the conceptual side of formulating hypothesis and um, then like feeding it into, into the systems. Are those people also programmers or? Do they realize, do they have people who realize this for them? No, they, uh, so a good data scientist will write their, they'll do their own programming. And most data scientists today are using languages like R or Python. Um, there are, you know, MATLAB is a, a, a popular programming mm -hmm. environment. Uh, SAS, uh, SAS, um, is uh, those are two those last two are commercial tools whereas r and python are open lang free languages mm. um having said that um data scientists aren't typically uh i wouldn't call them software devs with all the discipline and and uh practices that good software developers use so to some extent they're hackers um we often at thoughtworks we often try to pair a data scientist with a dev so that the quality of the code that they write goes up. Um, so it's not, uh, so the data science, the, the role of the data scientist is to take a business question or uh, it could be a business question, it could be a question from some other domain, but it's uh, some practical question like, uh, as an example, if I'm running a grocery store um, and, I, uh, and I offer a coupon for, um, 
20% off of peanut butter. Um, I might lose money on that, but can I, can I predict when people will continue to buy peanut butter because I gave them that very first coupon? So that's the business question. Um, can, should I invest in giving these coupons for, for items? And what kind of, what can I expect? What kind of behavior can I expect after that? Um, so that's the business question. And the data scientist has the ability to say, I can turn that into an experiment and I can use all of this data to analyze who is likely to use that coupon and then continue buying peanut butter at full price uh, after after mm -hmm. the fact. So uh, I don't know if that example made sense, but that's mm -hmm. um, the data scientist sort of takes the business question and turns it into the research question, and then they write the program, they write the code to do that. Now in the example, the Amazon. Um, the example I used earlier of, of what they call anticipatory shipping, uh, the data scientists, the, the, the business leaders who have the idea of saving money by, by shipping items before they've been ordered, that's the big idea. And then the data scientists, their, their role is to say, all right, well, how can I collect all the data that I need to make good, uh, highly, relatively accurate predictions uh, to go ahead and, and do that shipping. And so the data science work is a, a component of that bigger, that bigger solution. So he's, he is not only responsible for like, uh, analyzing the data they're w when they're there, he's also responsible for like, having ideas or finding out which kind of data I should mm -hmm. actually gather to make a prediction. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so, so the data, a good data scientist needs to not only have those good analytical skills, they need to have some domain knowledge. They need mm -hmm. to understand the, the data that they're work, how to interpret the data, um, how to manipulate the data. So there's a lot, uh, there's, in fact, we often say that, um, about 80% of, of data science is really spent just wrangling data, just, just getting, getting the data into a format that's ready to be analyzed and mined and, and modeled. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's really a lot of work, preparatory work before you start making the predictions. Mm -hmm. So, it's so this, this, um, this is something um, like you would do with a data warehouse, capturing the data and bringing them into a form um, to to analyze them. Yeah, very possibly. So um, data warehousing is interesting. Um, the purpose behind data warehousing is to pull information out of your operational and transactional systems into a format for analysis. Now, most data warehouses, most conventional data warehouses that have been built over the last 20 years um, have generally been for the purpose of doing business intelligence reporting and, and executive dashboards or, or dashboard presentation of data. So often the data is structured in a way that lets people drill down to low levels of detail or aggregate up. So it's sort of examining and exploring the data. But, but a data warehouse could also serve up data that is prepped in a different structure for this kind of data science work that we've been talking about. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of interesting that umbrella term analytics that we talked about earlier um, 
there's there's a lot happening in there. Data science and business intelligence are two very different sets of skills. So BI developers that that build in tools like MicroStrategy mm -hmm. or business objects um, are not the same people that are doing data science work and building these predictive mm -hmm. models. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit on what business intelligence actually means. Sure. Yeah, so business intelligence um, is a field that's been around for now for um, 25 years or so. Um, the goal of business intelligence is to give data-driven decision support to executives and business leaders who need to make decisions. So it could be um, financial data for making, you know, for, for analyzing and forecasting the, few, you know, the next year of business or the next quarter. It might be um, human resources data to make sure that you've hired the right people and they're, and they're, uh, they're performing well. It could be um, transactional data to see when you need to, uh, if, if I'll stick with, with retail as an example. Um, many retailers use business intelligence as a way to know when peak sales happen so they can st staff the stores or stock the stores uh, appropriately. So that's, so business intelligence is generally that descriptive or rear view mirror facing uh, analysis that I talked about earlier. Um, data science, on the other hand, is more in the predictive and prescriptive end of that range. And it's the skill set that we've been talking about with uh, people programming in R or Python, um, doing experimentation and research. So very different skills, um, very different tools and techniques uh, still fits within that, mm. within that so, spectrum. So business in intelligence is rather about Preventing the data in an easier consumable form and analytics is like deducing stuff from that's them. That's exactly right. Mm. That's a good way to say that. And there's a there's a term, uh, a, an acronym that we use a lot in business intelligence called OLAP, online analytical processing. And and what a lot of data warehouses do is they structure the data for online analytical processing. And what that means is that the data can be Uh, it can be sliced, it can be, uh, you can take subsets of the data easily, you can filter the data easily, you can drill down to low levels of detail like individual transactions and customers, or you can roll up the data to uh, store level or city level um, groupings of uh, aggregates of the data. So that's, uh, business intelligence revolves a lot around that sort of ability to drill and slice and dice mm. the data. So um, with data warehousing comes this notion of a extract uh, transform load mm -hmm. mechanism ETL. Uh, you see it everywhere. Yep. Um, what is it, and how much does it play into into the work of a data scientist? Okay, um, that's interesting. So ETL is the in the data warehouse world is the bulk of the programming. Um, it's usually done using a, t a, a tool, uh, tools like Informatica, Ab Initio. Um, there's uh, some open source or semi-open source tools like Kettle, uh, which is part of Pentaho. I won't rattle off all the names, but um, these are tools that 
enable the ETL developers to extract data out of the source databases, so the transactional systems uh, or operational systems, transform the data into the structures that it needs to be in, and load that data into the warehouse. So that's, you can think of those steps as being the, the processing steps in order, needed in order to populate the data warehouse. Um, the challenge with ETL, uh, if you look at m large, expensive data warehousing projects, the largest component, or at least one of the most expensive components of data warehousing projects is ETL. Um, creating the ETL, testing it, making sure it's working properly, and then ongoing maintenance and support of ETL is quite expensive. Um, one of the things that I've been talking a lot about lately is um, ingesting data differently. So, so the traditional way of ingesting data into a warehouse is doing that extraction into an integration layer in, the, in a multi-layered mm. architecture doing your transformation and business logic to, to enhance and restructure the data and then loading it into the warehouse. And so therefore there's a lot of complexity that lives at that integration layer in a, in a multi, in a three-tiered uh, data warehouse architecture. So something I've been talking about is extracting data into a, 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 a data core uh, some people are referring to this as a data lake, which is um, often using a, a, a NoSQL technology like Hadoop or something like that. Simply grabbing the data, moving it into that, that core or that lake, and then only dipping data out as you need it, when you need it, for the, the applications that need to be supported. So for example, if you're going to uh, populate an executive dashboard, you say, well, what what data does that dashboard need? It's a subset of all of the data. So we'll just go grab just that data. We'll structure just that data for, to support the, the dashboard. And then the workload is smaller because you still have to do the transformation, but now you're doing transformation on just that subset of data so that the dashboard so that you just have the data you need. That's right. Mm -hmm. So you, yeah. so the, the, the design principle is, um, just in time, uh, only only take what you need when you need it, and only transform what you need when you need to transform it. Hmm. Um. Oh, you had one other part of your question that I didn't answer. Um, you asked how how it's relevant to data scientists. Mm. Um, data scientists ingest data into their. Actually, it's it's interesting. We talked about that slicing and dicing in business intelligence. Um, data science actually does something almost opposite of that. So typically in data science, what we do is we combine the data into one flat, wide table, uh, if, you, if you think of mm. it as, as uh, structured uh, column mm. data. Uh, so we want big, wide data with lots of features or, or um, attributes in, in the table, whereas a relational database has lots of tables that are, that are connected to each mm. other. Um, data science uses, it denormalizes that data. Mm. So ETL um, doesn't play a big role in data science. Um, ETL plays a much bigger role in data warehousing. Uh, most data scientists prefer to go straight to the source or grab the raw uh, untransformed data into their data science uh, feed. Mm. So, so there's some different 
this, this creates an interesting challenge because um, data warehouses are often designed to support business intelligence and they have to be rethought in order to support the data scientists mm. because it's a different kind of thing. Yeah, I was, I was thinking a little bit is, is uh, along the lines, uh, isn't like the transform of this ETL the job of a data scientist when you, when you look at it from this um, there, there is some transformation that data scientists do. So the transform, um, let me think of a good example here. So for business intelligence, I was on a project uh, some time ago where we needed to calculate um, gross profit, net profit, um, and uh, uh, cost of sale. Those were three those were three calculations or transformations that we needed to do in the warehouse. There was others as well. Those particular um, calculations were quite complicated for the, this, this company. This was a company that sells um, streaming video and they have to pay, they have to pay the studio a royalty fee. There's a lot of fees that move around when you, when you uh, enable people to watch a movie online or, or on their TV. Um, so, so the calculations were quite complicated. Um, those transformations needed to happen in order for the business intelligence tools to do their job. Now, we also did some data science work on that project. We did some predictive modeling. And as it turned out, we didn't use, we didn't take advantage of those calculated, those are called calculated measures. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't take so much advantage or the data scientists weren't so much involved in that transformation logic. Um, they simply use that data as as additional features in the in the predictive anal analysis. Now, what data scientists will often do is what's called feature engineering. So, in the uh, in the world of statistics and and uh, machine learning, we talk about um, what we call a target variable, which is um, in my credit fraud example, the target variable is whether a transaction is fraudulent or not whether mm -hmm. you know what's the probability that it's fraudulent or not um, so you could say yes or no or you could say a percentage but it's one field in the data that is the prediction um, now all of the other fields that are used to make that prediction are called features so the more features we have to work with the more likely we are to come up with patterns that will make that make a highly accurate or a higher uh, mm. degree of accuracy. So feature engineering is sort of like transformation. It's where we're using singular raw features and combining them to create yet another feature and maybe another and another. So mm. kind of like the calculation of net profit where we used raw data to in, in a formula to create net profit, a data scientist might do something similar but it's for a different purpose. They don't, the data scientist doesn't create the, the business logic. They just simply use the, the results of that. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering a little bit about, if you talk about multi, multiple features, um, don't you run into the problems of multiple testing problems where the predictive value goes down because you use too many information? Oh, so yeah, this is an interesting, it, this is a, a skill that m the data scientists have. So not all the features are meaningful. In fact, mm. there's a lot of noise and a little bit of signal. And so we're looking for the signal 
uh, in the midst of all that noise. And what we want is to find the features that have the highest correlation to make the prediction. And we want to get rid of the features that don't seem to influence the, the prediction. So starting with more features is good because there's a likelihood of, um, uh, of getting better predictability, but it means that you're carrying all those, all those features that aren't useful, you're carrying them along. So what we do is we start pruning we want to do feature engineering to make good features and we want to do pruning to get rid of features that don't that aren't helpful so there's this sort of it's sort of part of the process of trimming down your data set to be the features that are the most meaningful and and matter the most hmm. going back a little bit uh, to um, data warehousing um, i've heard that you promote something called the uh, agile processing pipeline oh uh -huh. Um, some clients apparently call it Kenfrastructure. <laughs> Can you elaborate a little bit on this about what, what this actually is and why you think people should consider it? So this is actually what I was describing earlier when I was talking about the data lake or the mm. core. Um, that's part of this agile data processing pipeline. So, so my argument is that conventional data warehousing is it's too expensive and it's prone to failure. Um, in my book, I talk about how you can use agile development technique while still using a data warehouse architecture that we've been using for quite some time. Um, those architectures aren't bad, uh, but they tend to, the conventional data warehouse architecture tends to say, let's extract all of the data Let's do a, f a full source discovery, extract all the data into the integration layer, do apply all of the transformation logic, and then load that data into the warehouse. And most conventional data warehousing projects try to boil the ocean. I don't know if this is a term that's familiar in Germany, no, but not really. <laughs> the, the, uh, the, 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 the metaphor means trying to do everything all at one time, um, mm. trying to grab all of the data, trying to figure out all of the transformation logic big and load design all up of front. that data. Yeah, big design up front. It's very mm. similar to that. Um, so... So that's a fundamental problem. And, in my, and so my book says, go ahead and use conventional architectures, but do it in an agile, iterative fashion, pulling data a little bit at a time all the way through your architecture. The agile data processing pipeline that, that uh, one client has started referring to as the Kenfrastructure is it takes this a step further. It says, now that we're doing we're pulling just what we need when we need it. Let's move the transformation logic as close to the business as possible so that you, you can pull data quickly, cheaply, scalably into the lake or the, or the core, and then you can dip out of that core only what you need and then apply the logic at that, at that outer Uh, or the final stage in the in the architecture. So um, I think of it, uh, I actually have pictures of this that I draw kind of as concentric circles where the innermost circle is the core. You want to ingest data into that core cheaply and, and easily so that you can just put data in there and not have to think about how it's going to be used. And then, the, then there's an information layer around the core um, where... The information layer is the p 
publish and, uh, it's a publish and subscribe model that says we will dip the data out of the core, structure it in the right format for its intended purpose, and then the application sits on top of that information layer. And you might, the information layer, um, you might have four or five different ways to structure the data. So you might use a, a relational database for one purpose, you might use a graph database for another purpose, you might use a column family or another NoSQL technology for, and, and so each, each of those data stores is purpose built and you can drive the logic there instead of having a bunch of transformation logic mm. living in the middle. Um, um, so to so combine agile, I'm sorry, combine agile development practices with this agile processing pipeline and you've got a, a, that that gives the team a lot more ability to move quickly and adapt easily. Mm. Um, when you when you will send me the this thing, I, I can put it in the show notes. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah I'll so do that. Um, you said something about it's a publish su subscribe mechanism um, that means like um, the the transactional data store is giving me information when it stores data into it and I can react to it? Or? Yes. Oh, so that's, that's actually, I'm glad you asked that because another characteristic of this um, agile pro data processing pipeline is that instead of doing what, so conventional data warehouses pull data, they go, they, they, the code reaches into the source databases and pulls the data in, usually on a nightly batch basis. Um, what the uh, what this processing pipeline does is it, it drip feeds the the core um, by instrumenting those source systems to send messages uh, to put messages on a message bus, or you can use other techniques. Um, there's a technology that is often used with um, Hadoop called Kafka, and uh, it's a it's a sort of messaging type system, uh, or you can use a you know pub sub uh, mm. technique as well. Uh, but the idea being that instead of doing nightly batch movement of data, you're just, as data arrives in the transactional system, it just immediately gets published onto the message queue and where it can get consumed by the data core and by any other uh, mm. systems mm. that need it. In contrast to the data warehousing, from a traditional sense, you have a more immediate feedback on your data viewing application you have the ability to do what's fairly close to real-time analytics um, mm. if there's a need for that um, at the very least even if you don't need real-time analytics what this technique does for you is it it um, it reduces how heavyweight the ETL processes are so in fact virtually ETL as a uh, a bunch of code goes away because the E part, the extract part is, is now it's ingestion through pub sub. The transformation part lives in that information layer that we talked about. So T, the E and the T, are, the E goes away, the T is separated and the load happens uh, through that message queue um, out between the core and the information layer. I, I don't know if this is making sense verbally, but the idea is that um, I'm trying to eliminate that expensive ETL coding that is a problem in mm, data yeah. warehousing. And that you only do once for. That's uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you talked a lot about um, the, like the data 
um, you want to analyze. And um, I was wondering why uh, is it becoming more relevant now? Why are we coming up with these things now? Does it have to do something with the buzzword big data? <laughs> <laughs> well, so, uh, so I think I in some sense it does. Um, so I started my career in this field in uh, early 1990s, 91 or, or so. Um, my, uh, my PhD and my master's degree both included artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, I got involved in data mining, which was very popular in the, well, I should say, data mining was a hot topic, kind of like big data is. Uh, data mining was a hot topic in the mid-90s. The problem was that companies couldn't get a hold of their data to mine it. So they all liked the idea, but they, they didn't have uh, they didn't have their data well managed, so that became so data warehousing became a big deal because uh, companies realized that they would like to mine their data but they couldn't do it. So now, flash forward 20 years, um, we now have these new technologies, these big data technologies like Hadoop and Cassandra and um, a variety of others, and many of the the relational database vendors now have new technologies as well um, in memory databases, etc. All of these things have given rise to a whole new opportunity to analyze large volumes of data um, that we couldn't do 20 years ago. So I think that the there's a couple of things. Big data has become a, a an overused buzzword. Um, it's unfortunate. Uh, it's uh, it's also often assumed that big data also means data science. Those two don't have to, uh, you, you can have big data management without doing any data science. What does And big data mean actually? Big data, uh, I think that the, so the term was actually coined in 2004. Um, it was described in a Gartner uh, an analysis. Uh, Doug Laney is the, um, Actually, I, I don't think Doug Laney coined the term, but Doug Laney of Gartner described big data uh, using what are commonly known as the three Vs, volume, velocity, and variety. Um, big data has large volume, so it's, it's, uh, we now have the ability to store and analyze much larger volumes of data than we've been able to reasonably uh, manipulate in the past. Um, big data has high velocity. It's coming at us very fast. Um, it also decays very fast. So we might think of like a Twitter, uh, the fire hose of Twitter data. Um, it's, it's relevant for a short time, but it's a lot of data if you want to analyze Twitter, mm. Twitter and, uh, data. Um, and then it's got a lot of variety. So now we have the ability to have, uh, we can analyze video, Uh, we can do facial recognition, we can use, we can have audio, we can have text. So it doesn't all have to be relationally structured. Um, it's got this wide variety of formats and structures and we can bring all that together. Um, so, so a lot of things, um, uh, the, you know, the use of um, audio data combined with metadata about the audio file, um, combined with an image, we can combine all of this and do really uh, interesting data science. Not always good. It's like like you. Uh, I, I know that the 
uh, American, the NSA has been in the news a lot uh, for using analytics for very scary purposes. Um, that's unfortunate because uh, we, with it's it's sort of with power comes responsibility, and and um, it's questionable whether that's very responsible. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I got <laughs> got off track there. <laughs> yeah. All right. So when um, this big data is like the thing coming up, um, does it create the momentum for what we call analytics these days? It's it's made data science be a lot more possible and, and achievable for companies. Um, there are uh, three or four types of companies. There are companies for which data science is central to what they do. So companies like eBay, Facebook, Amazon, um, without analytics, they would not be nearly as successful as they are. Um, I, met, uh, I, I know the analytics director at um, eBay And he made an interesting comment to me. He said, eBay doesn't make anything. They don't buy anything and they don't sell anything. They just provide a platform for people to sell things to each other. So all they have is data to make their business and make the experience for their customers better. Um, So data is is central to what they do. So there's that first kind of company is the company that that they know that, that data and analysis or data science is central to what they do. Second kind of company is a company that they recognize that they have, that there's value in the data and they are looking for ways to create that value from the stored data. Um, but they don't see data as being central to their business and their Mm. existence. So many traditional retail chains um, might fall into this category. These are, you know, companies that have gotten by fine for years on intuition and experience. Um, They they know that they can benefit from data science or data analysis, but uh, it's not you know, they can still get along without it. And the third type of company are companies that have data, but they're, they're, they don't realize that there's potential value in that, uh, hidden in that data. Um, I often talk to c- clients and companies uh, about whether their data is truly an asset or whether it's a liability. And my argument is that, that if you're in a company where all the data are being collected and stored, but nothing is there, it's not being used for anything, then it's taking up space, it's taking up people time to manage it, uh, it's, an, it's a liability, it's expensive. Um, whereas the companies that do a good job of uh, analyzing and enhancing their data, they're turning that into a, an, a true asset. And, and so I encourage companies to consider uh, how to make their data as, much as, as valuable an asset as possible. Hmm. Um, let's change topic a bit. Okay. Um, why is it agile analytics? So um, analytics by nature uh, is not inherently agile. So um, what what would you define as agile? So agile is is the ability to deliver to create and deliver value early and frequently. Uh, in a project. So whether it's a software project, uh, let's start with software since that's where the agile uh, movement came from. In, in the world of software, uh, there are some people, some companies or project teams that work in a uh, what's called a waterfall fashion, which is design everything up front, um, 
do the requirements analysis, do the design up front, build and build and build, do tail end testing, and then deliver the solution all in one big bang at the end. Um, those projects commonly fail. Uh, they either fail to meet the, the true requirements or they fail to uh, deliver the, the ex meet the expectations of the, the, cons the customers, the end users. So now what I've done with my book is to take agile software techniques and apply them to analytics. It's not a big leap except that the, the world of data the community of people that are that are working with data, data warehousing, business intelligence, data science, they're not the same people that are building software. So they haven't heard the software message, and even if they have, they they haven't done a good job of understanding how these things in software can apply to uh, um, to, to their, right. their yeah. So so the you know simply put, the agile uh, agile techniques are typically fast iterative cycles of development where we do a little bit of requirements, a little bit of design, a little bit of build, a little bit of test, and we quickly showcase that working, those working features to the, the stakeholders and we elicit their feedback. We want to know how they, do they like it? Do they accept it? Do, you know, how do we adapt to that feedback? And in that process, and so this is, you know, every week to two weeks, we're delivering new working features. In the case of analytics, we're delivering new either predictive models or uh, new discoveries or new insights uh, that business stakeholders can uh, evaluate. They can say, this is useful. I can take action on this. I know what to do with this. Or they can say, can you go back and do a little bit more, do something a little bit different? So same concept, every week or two, uh, we're trying to provide something of value. Um, meanwhile, we're continuing to iterate on the analysis. So, you know, you might, uh, a, a, a conventional data science project might run three to six months um, before it produces, you know, good, accurate, predictive models. Um, Agile, Agile data science or Agile analytics, um, we would produce an early predictive model um, it might not be really as accurate as it could be, meaning maybe it's better than flipping a coin, but not by much. So think my credit fraud example. Um, it might be uh, an early predictive model that kind of predicts uh, credit fraud, but it misses a lot of the time. And then we iterate on that and iterate on that. So we're incrementally making the accuracy better, but we're also getting feedback from the business to make sure we're doing mm. the right thing and, and using the right uh, approaches. Mm. So. so how do you achieve this? So because uh, you said not all analytics projects work this way. Why is that so? Um, it sounds, sounds so obvious when <laughs> you tell it. Does, it does, doesn't it? Um, so, so the first problem is that um, the agile movement in software blew up uh, around 2001. Actually, It, it, 2001 was when the Agile Alliance was formed and the Agile Manifesto was signed. Um, that was the core group of 17 people. Uh, Martin Fowler, who was uh, another thought worker, was and, uh, another and show, show uh, guest from uh, some episodes ago. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> another, po another, another. Um, so the the movement started in two, well, it started a little bit before this, but 2001 it kind of 
consolidated. By about 2004, the software community was really starting to pay attention, uh, meaning that companies like banks and insurance companies were starting to say, hey, this looks like a good way, a better way to develop software. The problem is that the data community didn't start paying attention until about 2009 or 10. Um, I, uh, I started writing about this in 2004, about using Agile for data warehousing in 2004. Um, my book came out in 2010, uh, actually 2011, um, and I was first asked to speak at a conference on, on this subject in 2010. Um, and I think I was the first, uh, this was a, a Data Warehousing Institute mm -hmm. World Conference, um, and I was the first keynote speaker to have spoken about Agile Data Warehousing at that time. And, and it was a very new concept to people in the data community. Um, so the data community has lagged behind software uh, in, this, in picking up this Agile approach. Um, I think it's confusing for a lot of people. Um, software um, is about custom building functionality from raw code or source code. Um, data management, business intelligence, uh, advanced analytics, it's, it's a different, uh, it, it looks and feels different. Um, so it takes some, uh, it takes some abstraction and generalization to think about how to apply these, the, these techniques. So the guiding principles are deliver value, uh, collaborate frequently with your stakeholders and, and, and working software or working uh, analytics in our case is the measure of success. Um, we can stick with those values and we can adapt the practices to, to work for data science. But it's new to a lot of people. I think that's the biggest problem. And what kind of practices do you employ? So what I've tried to do, now this actually, um, this actually looks different in data science than it does in data warehousing. So for ETL development in a data warehouse environment and for data modeling in a data warehouse environment, I've done a l I've, what I've tried to do is take a lot of the software practices um, and adapt them to ETL development. So things like test-driven development, pair programming, um, use of patterns, refactoring, those, those ideas all apply to ETL coding, but they're tricky to apply because we're not writing, like the, the data warehouse practitioners aren't using languages like Java or Ruby or other languages to write this ETL code. They're using a commercial software package. So figuring out how to test it, um, uh, how to do unit level testing, that's kind of a new concept. But those practices, are pretty conceptually, they apply. So the things mm -hmm. that the software community, uh, software developers are doing apply to ETL. Data science is a little different. So in data science, what we do is we may, we may try out uh, a dozen different models uh, or, or algorithms before we hit on one that's going to start to produce some good results. So we may write a lot of throwaway code in the process of figuring out which algorithmic technique or which, which models are going to become relevant. So I often describe this as a, a, lab, uh, a lab phase and a factory phase. So the lab phase is where 
we're we're doing we're we're hacking code. Uh, we're moving quickly. We expect to throw it most of that code away. And as soon as uh, an algorithm or an approach starts to look like it's going to be keepable, then we need to transition into a factory uh, mindset where we need to put tests around the code. I in the case of Python, uh, it's there's unit tests framework for Python. There's mm -hmm. behavior-driven development for Python. Um, so, so if you, as you transition from this lab uh, mindset to a factory mindset, um, a data scientist, especially pairing with a good developer, can start to put uh, tests around that code. They can, they're, I don't know about patterns usage quite as much, but in, uh, like, I'll go back to my credit fraud detection example. What, what ultimately has to happen for that to be a good model is the model goes into production against live streaming data. So as soon as you swipe mm -hmm. your credit card or the vendor swipes your credit card, um, that transaction goes over the wire. It runs through this analytical model, which scores it and says, this looks like a fraudulent transaction. And it gives the vendor back a message mm -hmm. that says card declined. Yep. And, and that happens like really fast. So that means that the predictive model got built in the lab, validated and verified in the lab. And then the developers working with the data scientists had to actually write production code or turn that code into production quality code and put it into, uh, into action. In that case, the agility uh, starts, it, it starts as you transition from the lab into the factory mm. and then it's just, it's like software development. Yeah. It's, it's similar to to a software development yeah. project. Oh, okay. Exactly. All right. Um, so uh, as our time is nearly up, um, is there a question you would have liked me to ask, or is there anything you want to say as closing words? Oh, let's see. Um, oh, yes. Um, so the question that I think we should all be asking is, what is the future of data science? So. So the, uh, the interesting thing that we've been talking about uh, requires a lot of human work, uh, expertise, skills, and time. Um, now we are moving into a world where everything produces data. Your car is loaded with data. Your, your mobile device is loaded with data. Um, if, you have a, if you have a Fitbit or a, a, you know, a biomedic or a, what, are the, what are they called, a personal health, a wearable device, mm -hmm. those things create data. E everything is creating data. So, what's, uh, so the question is, um, what does that look like? How can, if, if it takes months, you know, weeks to months in order to produce good data science results, how can we possibly uh, deal with this explosion of data in a meaningful way? Isn't it all just going to pile up and, and bottleneck? And so um, my th prediction is, my theory is, that we're, we're going to m move into a place where we write algorithms that, uh, and there's, this, is, this has been done a little bit, but we'll, we'll start using more and more algorithms that will just continuously try to build predictive models uh, automatically. Uh, and, and many of these models will be junk, they'll be thrown away. But the ones that start to hit and, the, and start, you know, the, the, the machine can be building, doing the, the automated data science in the background. 
And as soon as it starts creating a prediction that's worthy of attention, it can, it can bubble that up to uh, maybe a human, uh, a, a human expert to, to evaluate. So if we, if we think about big data as being massively parallel computing to manage data or to process data, now imagine a massively parallel uh, uh, data science automated data science process so that so that we're not just processing the data we're actually doing predictive model development uh, like like in real time round the clock some models live some models don't live um, I think it's kind of fascinating I don't know exactly what that looks like but yeah. uh, I guess the uh, I'll, I'll add one more thing and you can edit this uh, however you see fit the, the other question you didn't ask and we didn't get into is the ethics uh, and morality mm. of all of this. So usually this discussion of data science is also triggers questions about the ethical use of personal data, medical data. Um, I know in Germany you have very strict laws and, and regulations around how data can be used. Um, the rest of the world doesn't have that, um, including America. And um, it's a big problem uh, how, uh, if, if, if a company is using its customers' data uh, irresponsibly, customers will cry foul very quickly and, uh, and, and the company will lose customers. Um, the uh, government agencies, they somewhat are the same way, except they're less responsive to uh, the people saying, you know, mm. you can't do this. Um, so in my country, um, we unfortunately have used 9-11, the events of 9-11, uh, as an excuse to give our government permission to, to use our data in uh, uh, less controlled ways. And it's scary to me. And I, and I think that, uh, that one of the things that we need to establish globally are some rigorous standards and, and rules and guidelines for how data uh, can be used and cannot be used. Um, so, especially as it's it's all statistics and therefore it can be wrong. That's true. What's what yeah. the software predicts about you? That's exactly right. It can be wrong. It can be um, it can be used to profile people in ways that are uh, that are not the, the, the you know it, it could be um, it could be detrimental. Mm. Uh, so that's uh, yeah. There's a there's a, a potential to misuse data science, and um, as much as I love this field, um, we have to be very responsible. Mm -hmm. So that's the that's the other question that yeah. you didn't ask. All right, um, how can people find out more about um, all this agile analytics you're doing? Um, so agile, if you uh, if you do a Google search on agile analytics, um, you should find my website. Um, there are uh, starting to become more books uh, available in this subject. One book that I've uh, recently gone through is a book called Agile Data Science. Um, it's, it's quite good. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually a good uh, example of using Hadoop for, to do Agile Data Science. Um, there is the, the community that are doing Agile in data warehousing, business intelligence, and data science is it's growing slowly, um, and it, it seems it's it's you know there seems to be more and more uh, resources coming available for mm -hmm. 
we will we will link to these in the show notes as well so okay. you don't have to type them <laughs> um all right uh, and how can people find out more about you so you mentioned your blog are you on twitter or any I, anything else I how can people twitter. get yeah. in contact with you sure my um my twitter handle is the agilist t-h-e-a-g-i-l-i-s-t uh, my email address is ken collier at the agilist.com uh, k-e-n-c-o-l-l-i-e-r um, and uh, i have a website that's yeah. the so uh and i've uh i try my best to put use usable consumable information there uh it's been a little while since i've posted a blog there i need to do that but um you can contact me through that okay page perfect as well. um any upcoming speeches uh let's see i'm going to be um yes the, uh, as a matter of fact i'm going to be in, in copenhagen um in early september uh, I'll be speaking at the information, uh, it's called IM 2014 uh, conference, and uh, I think if you go to im2014.net, I think that's the website for that conference. Mm -hmm. I'll also be teaching in London uh, through the Data Warehousing Institute. I'll be teaching a seminar series, uh, three days of Agile Data Warehousing and BI. Uh, topics and that'll be also in early September um, so you can find that on the TDWI website okay perfect um, then thanks very much you're welcome for being on the show it was I very interesting it. My pleasure um, I mentioned again the show notes so um, all the stuff um, you mentioned will be available so people don't have to Google uh, and, and find out these things extensively um, we would actually like to have feedback how you liked uh, the episode as our listeners so um, either go to iTunes or use our blog to um, comment on it and maybe tell us what you like the most and what you like the least about this episode uh, that's all for now goodbye um, from Matthew Radio this is Johannes speaking bye thanks for listening to SE Radio an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine for more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To support us, you can advertise SE Radio by clicking the Dig, Reddit, Delicious, or Slashdot buttons on the site, or by talking about us on Facebook, Twitter, or your own blog. If you have feedback specific to an episode, please use the commenting feature on the site so that other listeners can respond to your comments as well. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks again for your support. Thank you.